Hello, everyone, and welcome to Picture the Sea podcast, hosted by me, Andrew. And me, Rachel. Now, please note that this is a true crime podcast, so listener caution is advised. Now, I'm going to keep this first section quite short for a change. So if you want to interact with us, follow us, or anything you wish on social media, you'll find a link in the show notes. Go ahead and do that. I'm not going to plug it anymore today. But, Rachel, after we recorded the last episode, you, you reminded me and asked me, and I agreed with you that, and I need to apologise that I didn't do it in the last episode. We need to thank everyone who voted for us in the Pod by, Pod by Bo Awards. Yeah. So for those of you out there who either didn't or don't know what I'm talking about, we actually came third in the best independent podcast category Woo. for 2021. And at the time, we'd already made eight episodes. So I think that's pretty awesome. That is amazing. And to to be honest, I actually, through um, being recognised in that um in in that with that award i found out found so many more shows as well um so i actually really rate the the roundup and the write-up that they did uh, on all the other podcasts that were um that were runners up and winners in in their categories uh, maybe hopefully some point in the future we might even be able to get the first place spot yeah who knows so yeah it's really awesome thank you everyone who voted for us it's we can't put it into words. Um, and, and just for those who don't know what I'm talking about, Pod Bible is the UK's largest podcast publication. They release a magazine every month, and the category that we came in third, uh, they state it's the hardest category to do well in, and there was over 500 independent pods put forward and voted for. So thank you, everyone. I, I don't understand how we did it, but I'm not going to complain. And thank you again. Absolutely not. And I also think that, like... Um when when we've won something like that like you said it's it's just um gonna instigate us to keep on going and 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 making more of these um more of these episodes and creating more content for everyone so thanks no yeah i I totally agree and as a result of that and also as a result of bethan on seeing red hello bethan i know you listen mentioning us um our listeners increased by over 500% over the last two weeks. So so thank you, Bethan, as well. And everyone always lis- listens to C-Red anyway, but if you don't, go give it a listen. Um, and let's hope we've kept some of those extra listeners and they can keep on enjoying us. Yeah, an interesting fact for those that are interested. Um, Andrew and I only um, uh, initially started talking about podcasts when uh, he recommended I listen to Seeing Red. I have no idea how it even cropped up because uh, we worked together, so we weren't necessarily just talking naturally about true crime. But um, that that is um, was kind of where our friendship blossomed, really. Would you say, Andrew? Yes, I would say so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'm actually an unofficial advert for Seeing Red, I believe, because talked to everyone about it and even my wife has got the tote bag from CrimeCon so when she goes out shopping she's a walking advert for CMED as well. Yep so I too can uh, claim um, I've referred a number of people there and um, I all it's always like a talking point in certain friendship circles um, on latest episodes Um, and when they do the Patreon it's a who's who who signed up this week um, from from my little crowd so that's always good so yes. Great so Rachel are you ready for some conversations about crime and all things related? 
Of course, always ready. Let's go for it. Let's go for it, yeah. So if it's safe for you to do so, I'd like all of you to relax. Close your eyes and picture the scene. Today we're going to take you back to the night of May the 15th, 1986, in London. And we're in the Brixton area of London, which is in the borough of Lambeth. It's in the southeast of London and is an urban centre that is well known for its multi-ethnic community. It attracts people from all different cultures and their origins and from all over the world. And while the majority of it is residential, it has a vibrant, lively feel about it. And on May the 15th, 1986, which was the first evening, its local bars, clubs and pubs were busy despite it still being a weekday night. Now, it was a dry night, with the weather around 12 degrees Celsius, which is around 53 degrees Fahrenheit. And while it was not overly cold for that time of the year and area, it wouldn't be the type of weather you'd want to spend too much time outside in. Though... I imagine if you're out having some drinks with friends or loved ones, I'm sure after a few drinks you'd not notice or feel the temperature at all. No, and I think in, in recent months, definitely we've all acclimatised to drinking outdoors without masks, uh, regardless of the season. We have, you right. And I'd, I'd like to introduce you all to David Cole. Now, David was a British rail worker, and around five hours after going out himself, he found that he was in the Prince of Wales pub in Brixton. Now, it was a pub that was known to be friendly and welcoming to gay men. And it was a place where gay men could go and feel relatively safe and enjoy themselves. Now, David looked around the pub and that's where he saw him. On the dance floor, enjoying himself, dancing away to the music. And him being um, Michel DiMarco Lupo or Michael Lupo, as he liked to be called. Now, David turned around to the person he was with and he simply said, said that's him. He's the one. So can I can so, I just so. say before we go on, I, I thought for a minute there, why does he need to feel safe and enjoy himself in a bar specifically for gay men? But then I remembered it was 1986, and that's a real shame that um, that that there was a world where people didn't feel safe to be themselves in, you know, pubs or cafes or restaurants and, and things like that, like just feels like that was a lifetime ago I, I just, I'd, have to, I'd have to disagree with you a little bit there right really? because because i agree with you where it's a shame that someone couldn't feel safe but yeah. it doesn't feel a lifetime ago to me because it still happens now it's just the the, the people have changed it's um you read about it all the time who for example like women being attacked when they're out doing the everyday things and or people being attacked of colour or all or, or different all different um reasons but people still yeah, are safe when I they th- go out. I suppose I, yeah, I made a naive comment there, didn't I? I, f- I feel like I live in quite a safe place. Um uh but yeah, no, actually upon reflection, I um I if you think about that in a greater context, yeah, I agree with you. Sorry, Rach, I feel like I've told you off that I didn't mean to. No, no. Michael Lupo, he was born in Gensardo di Luciani, which is in southern Italy, and he was born on the 19th of January 1953, which made him 33 years old at the time David saw him on the dance floor. Now, as a child, Michael was a choir boy, and before he joined the Italian army and becoming an elite army commando in the Italian army. And it was while in the army that he said to be where Michael explored his sexuality in a sense that he allowed his soul thought up to that point in his life to press attraction to men to start to develop. When 
When Michael was 22, he had already left the Italian army and he decided to move to London to start a new life for himself. He started off working as a hairdresser and he had the ambition to own his own boutique and also he had the ambition just to be open about his sexuality and not to hide it. And he was wow. success he was successful because he managed to get to the point where he did own a boutique and he that like, like he always wanted along with an expensive home in a nice area of South Kensington, London. And also wow. And he, he subsequently sold a boutique and worked in an East Alderon shop in London at the at the time where we're talking about now in nineteen eighty six. I'm impressed, Andrew. If it's to, your knowledge of Yves Saint Laurent. Uh, well, I used to when I was a child, not child, I'm feeling old. When I was a teenager, it was the M brand to wear by yourself. Ooh, well, it, there you go. I know, I, I think I had a shirt, my prize shirt that I went out in every Friday night. Um, anyway, because because of his name, possibly, uh, because Lupo in Italian is translated to wolf, or because of the combat training he received in the army, or possibly because of his sexual prowess, um, I'm saying that because he boasted that he had he had had over four thousand lovers. I don't know where he got the energy from, but he boasted that. Oh my god! Over four thousand lovers, and so so Michael likes to refer to himself as a wolfman. Oh dear! I I always find you you steer clear of anyone that refers to themselves in third person, especially with a name like that. That's exactly what I was going to say. I always worry when someone refers to himself as something else. So he, so he seemingly had everything that he wanted in life. He had money, success, attention, love, and desire. But we have to be careful what we want, wish for in life, don't we, Rachel? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm intrigued about where this is going. So that, let's go back to the night of May the 15th in the Prince of Wales pub in Brixton. I had left us with David Cole, the British rail worker, turning around to the person he was with and saying to them, that's him, he's the one. Now, why did he say this? Who was the person he was with? And how did he know Michael Lupo or know of him if he didn't know him? So in order for me to answer that question, I'd like to take you back a short while eight days to be exact, to the popular gay nightclub of the Coco Cabana that was in Ells Court in London. It was the 7th of May, a Wednesday, and David Cole, the chap I just mentioned, he had been in a club to relax, unwind, and see if he could get acquainted with anyone. Can, now, can I just say, nightlife in the 80s in central London was wild. Why? He's out. He was out on a Thursday night just a minute ago. This is now Wednesday night. Like they're they're in some like you know busy places. The dance floors go in. Yeah, in a word. Crazy, crazy times. And they probably spent all these days hung over on the train, dealing with people. But yeah, yeah. Um, so where was I, Rachel? Give me a reminder. So Sorry. yeah, so you know it's fine. No, don't apologise. Um, I'm just getting old, and I I lose my mind sometimes. So. So David did get acquainted with someone that night of the 7th, and that someone he got acquainted with was Michael Lupo. Now, the two of them, they hit it off immediately, and they agreed to go to a nearby lorry park. And for those of you listening to this outside of the UK, a lorry is what we call a truck. Sorry, a lorry is what you call a truck in the United States and elsewhere. And a lorry park is a place where they can park up and rest or sleep if it's overnight. It's basically just a huge car park for trucks. So truck I didn't park. know lorry parks existed. 
Yes. I did wonder where lorries went when the drivers went to went wanted a nap. <laughs> yeah, they just hide. Feel educated. So, so they, they they went to the lorry park to have sex, but Michael oh. he wanted more than just sex. He wanted he wanted to kill David, and he tried to, albeit unsuccessfully. He tried to strangle him with a nylon stocking or ties of suspenders, as you might know them. Now, what? David, yes, I know it's. Where'd he get himself some tights? I, I can only imagine it was premeditated. But oh, David, okay. David was lucky. Oh, he just maybe just like carrying him around. Who knows? <laughs> David, he, David was lucky and he managed to escape. So, what was he doing looking for Michael now? Is a question I have to ask. Was it revenge? And the answer is well, yes, kind of it was, but it was the right type of revenge. Now, I can't speak for the rest of the world, as I don't have the knowledge. And I don't want to guess. But at the time, at this time in the UK, and we mentioned it earlier, at least being gay, while it was obviously illegal, it was still not widely accepted by everyone, including the police, unfortunately. So attacks did happen, and usually they didn't get reported. David, however, David was brave. He went to the police and reported everything. So when he did, and Detective Superintendent John Schumacher, who, who was tasked uh, heading the investigation up, he managed to convince David to go back out with an undercover police officer and try to find and identify Michael Lupo, which he subsequently did. So again, not only reporting it was brave, actually going back out there and having to try and find and look someone in the eye who just tried to kill you, that's extremely brave. Good on the policeman that and the um, detective superintendent for believing him and encouraging him as well to to track Michael down. Exactly, yeah. And but the question now arises: Is was David Michael's first victim or attempted victim, and why did he attack him? Now, Michael, as I mentioned earlier, he liked to call himself the Wolfman, and he boasted as having over four thousand sexual partners. He also boasted as having connections by his sexual escapades with rich and powerful people in London. And it was backed up by diaries that were later found in his home. Actually, the diaries, some of them were in code, so the police could only decrypt some of them, but it was backed up with the diaries. And I'll, I'll pop up on our social media pages a copy of a newspaper article from the time that mentions this. But if he liked sex so much, he obviously wasn't homophobic because he was gay himself. Those 4,000 partners were all male. So why did he try and kill David? That's a $24,000 question. Mm. Now, let me take you back to answer that question. Let me take you back 10 weeks prior to his arrest to when Michael went to the doctors to get the results of a checkup. It was when he was getting those results that he was giving some terrible news. And that news was that he was HIV positive. And we have to remember... I'm going to script a little bit here, but we have to remember that this was at the start of the the AIDS pandemic and it was still really people ignorant towards it and very scared. So it was a death sentence at the time as well. So he, so imagine being told that, that you've got everything that you want in life. You go to the doctor for a checkup and they tell you like you're HIV positive. Absolutely. Yeah. Awful. So, so this set Michael on a downward spiral that eventually led to his arrest. Now, he remember he had been trained with an elite commando unit in the Italian army, and Michael knew how to kill people without the need of any weapons. 
just using his bare hands. So he decided to do just that. He wanted revenge. He blamed other gay men for making him HIV. Even though he was the one who had slept with so many men, he put the blame solely on other people. And who knows he how many people he infected himself before he found out. So two weeks after... Was... He... Sorry. Sorry, you might go on to mention this, but would he have been accountable for infecting others? You know, like, I have read news articles where men have knowingly infected other partners and therefore been like imprisoned um in the, in the uk at least no because uh, no. it is nowadays but at the time yeah. it wasn't a crime right got you okay okay cool sorry carry on so two weeks after michael was told he was hiv positive so on march the 15th 1986 to be exact he met another railway worker, just a coincidence, a 37-year-old called James Burns. Now, just to be fully accurate here, because I hate pods that just guess or make things up, some mm -hmm. references refer him as having the name of Alex Casson. So it was either James Burns or Alex Casson, and I couldn't find... Same different... person? Same person, they just reported the name differently in different places. And it goes wow. to show the, the indifference towards... I yeah, I was just about to say. People at the time, yeah. Like that just would be appalling nowadays if, like, if the press couldn't even get the name right. But that's crazy. Exactly, yeah. And I, I couldn't refer find a definitive answer, so I thought yeah. I thought I'd tell you them both, but I'm going to refer exactly. to him as James going forward, just to make it easier. So he met uh, James at a gay bar, and he lured him to an abandoned flat or an apartment, as you call them elsewhere in the world, in Kensington. Now, James was strangled, sodomized. He was smeared with excrement, and his, <gasps> and his tongue had been bitten off. Now, I'm, I'm only giving you these details now to give you an idea of how horrible this attack was. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a simple, I'm going to kill you, because I'm going to torture you and, and humiliate you in death. Like, Michael is violent. Yes, he was a very angry man. So three weeks after that attack, we actually, I'm just going to stop there. If you look at the photographs, which I put up on social media, he looks quite the opposite as well. You wouldn't think of it to look at him. But three weeks after that attack, with the police unable to find any links to who killed James Burns at all, Lupo, Michael Lupo, he met an Anthony Connolly. And he met him in a bar and lured him outside to a secluded place for sex. You can see a pattern arising here now. Yeah. Now, he killed Anthony, and his body was found in an almost carbon copy of the first murder. So I'm not going to repeat the details, but it was virtually the same. And But what makes it even worse is his body was found by children in a railway shed the next day. Oh, no. I know. It's, um, do you know what, Andrew? I bet at the time it wasn't even widely reported in the press. So gay men were not on high alert. You know, there's a pattern forming, clearly, but the, it's it's it probably wasn't deemed to be, you know, breaking news on the six o'clock, like, bulletins. So people were just going out yeah, I, I as believe, normal clubbing. Yeah, I believe it became big news but at the beginning you're right now and it, it's also actually worth mentioning that such was the fear and panic that surrounded AIDS and HIV at the time that the coroner 
wouldn't examine the body of Anthony Connolly straight away and lengthy delays occurred because he wanted to make sure he knew if he was HIV positive or had AIDS first in a fear that he might catch it from the dead body. Oh, wow. And, and this is a medical professional. So at this stage, they knew that Anthony, obviously now dead, was gay. Yes, they found he out from his flatmate. He didn't want to touch the body because he felt like AIDS would be transferred to him, even through all of the medical gear that you have to wear when you're doing an autopsy. That's just yeah, horrible, isn't it? Like, what an awful experience to Anthony's family as well. Like, how long did he have to, like, stay there it, it with few, no death yeah. certificate? Like, It was a few days and... and things got sped up because the gay community at the time actually started protesting against this and obviously rightly so because they were being treated at different uh, classifications of people at the time weren't they so yeah. they said how can you not even deal with this body and so so three days later after Anthony's death on the 18th of April in what seemed to be just a fit of rage when leaving a gay bar and crossing the Hungerford Bridge, Michael, he saw a homeless man who was aged about 60, and this man was never able to be identified. But oh, no. I know according to Lupo himself, something just snaps inside of him and he wanted to. He said he wanted to just scream um, uh, about the world against the world. And so he attacked the homeless man, he kicked him in the groin, he strangled him, and then he threw him off the bridge into the Thames and killed him. Well, he, he was probably angry because he didn't get to take anyone home that night. No one had had matched his advances. And so he could kill him. You're probably right. Yeah, yeah he so he just, he just took it out in the first person he saw. And that poor man, like, who wasn't even able to be identified, like, I know. what a vile human being. I know, exactly. And so the following day after the homeless man was killed, Lupo would strike a game. And so, obviously, he was class as a spree killer by now because it was in such a short period of time but this time he attacked a mark leyland now mark was lucky however and the pair had met and they had agreed to go to a public toilet to have sex which is what they did at the time it was called cottaging and however when they got to the toilet mark changed his mind which seemingly saved his life now lupo still tried to attack him and this time with an iron bar but mark was able to escape Mark, however, and this again goes back to the general feeling and fear that, that the homosexual community had at the time. Mark was afraid to report what actually happened to the, him, to the police. So instead of reporting it as an attack or attempted murder, he actually just told the police it was an attempted mugging, which obviously um, affected the that way the police dealt with it. Yeah, that wouldn't have been treated as seriously. Exactly. And, and also, the police are building a profile, might have been able to catch... Michael, yeah, being in that area, but couldn't couldn't um tie the two cases together. But yeah, no, I I do understand at the same time. Mark is you know feeling like he wants to keep his respect and not be um belittled by the police or or you know or portrayed as as anything that he's not, which exactly. is understandable. Uh, yeah, exactly, and we can't blame him at all. He only changed his story after Lupo had been arrested. So when he saw it in the news, he 
recognize him and, and went and changed his story. Now, and even, even then, that's a massive step, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Definitely. Now, Lupo's final victim, his final victim that we know about anyway, but I suspect it probably was his final victim, was a hospital worker called Damien McCluskey. Now, the police don't know exactly when he was killed, but he was last seen on the 24th of April, which is six days after... I believe uh, he tried to Lupo tried to kill Mark, and he was last seen in a gay pub in Kensington. So again, everything fits the the profile of Lupo. Yeah. Now on his arrest, he when David found him in the uh, Prince of Wales pub on his arrest, he was eventually not immediately but eventually charged with four counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. And when his home was searched, they found a room that was described as a sex, as a sex dungeon with various bits of S&M items found in it. Now, this wasn't linked to being used in any of the murders. And obviously, you can guess at the time with the newspapers, there was a lot of hyperbole in there. I think they, yeah. they they bigged it up more than it actually was, which is why I'm not really going into detail because it wasn't linked to the crimes anyway. I, I would also say that knowing what you've mentioned so far... I don't think there's just four counts of murder, or maybe four counts of murder, but not just two counts of attempted. I, yeah. I, I think I think there'll be like there'd be more digging to be done here. It's just that because of the time and people not wanting to come forward, um, he's gotten away with just such a, a small number. Um, yeah, I, I would, but... I would, I would agree with you slightly. I mean, what I would say is the way that he killed the people was almost identical all the time apart apart from the homeless man because that was a fit of rage um well it was all rage but you know what i mean <laughs> yeah it, it was unplanned so i think if they if they would have been more murders then yeah, they would have been able to link them up and it only really and michael admitted this himself he only did it when he found out he was hiv positive so actually all these deaths occurred over an eight-week period so it was, I agree with you, I think there was lots of probably more attempted murders because if you think about it, he, at one point he, he, um, he killed a gay man, uh, sorry, he killed a homeless man and then the next day he, he strikes again and then shortly afterwards, six days later, he strikes again. So I'm feeling he was probably doing it as often as he could. But, but yeah, he probably just didn't succeed every time. It's just mind-blowing that, though. Like, you, I mean, you say, obviously, it was triggered by the AIDS, HIV um, diagnosis, but what an escalation. Like, most true crime, there's, like, patterns forming, right? There's, like, in childhood or in the teenage years or the early um adulthood where there's like slightly odd behavior but he has gone from zero to rage and it's been i think you said 10 weeks since diagnosis yeah, which is wild and eight weeks since the first yeah murder so yeah just crazy just crazy how uh, how his mind is switched so that's probably got something to do with his military training hey yeah definitely now Lupo, he pled guilty at trial, and in July of 1987, he was sentenced to life in prison, a whole life term, which is quite unusual for the UK, plus 14 years. 
Oh, that word, hey, you're probably thinking that's quite odd because you don't really get that. I know it's quite common in America to have like 200 or 300 year sentences or stuff, one of which can obviously never be resolved. But here, when you get a whole life term, it's usually just a whole life term because you obviously can't get out anyway. But the reason the 14 years was added on because the whole life term was for the murders and the 14 years was for the attempted murders. And I think, I think it was just to make a point more than anything else. And he, he did actually appeal it um, at a later date, and his appeal, <laughs> his appeal wasn't successful. Just the length of the length of the actual uh, sentence, but it was unsuccessful. Now, so all those things that he could do to four victims, or well, no, yeah, four victims, because even though the homeless guy wasn't attacked in quite a similar manner, it's still a brutal attack, and he complains and tries to reduce his sentence. What a joke! Yeah, I know Lupo. He pled guilty. Sorry, I've said that already, haven't I? Yeah, let me start again. Where am I? Um, now, police worldwide, in places such as New York, Berlin, and Los Angeles, they investigated their unsolved murders because Michael, Michael, he was known to visit those cities among others to see if, and they did so, so so see if they could identify any crimes he had committed elsewhere. But they could find no links. And again, the reason why I think they could find no links was. I think they looked because, like you said, it's so unbelievable that like, he just went from zero to 100 so quickly. But I think the reason why they couldn't find any links, because obviously this was before he visited those places before he got diagnosed. But it's, it goes to show how how horrific the crime was that they said, we, we know he's been here, we need to check our records as well. And and I, I mean this in a respectful way, at least his crime scenes were so obscene that you could quite quickly narrow it down Yes. as to whether the MO was followed for um, a particular, like, um, crime. Exactly. And I, I know there's some of you out there probably thinking, we don't know why he killed these people. We, we're taking a guess. Now, we do know why, because unless he was lying, Michael Lupo, he would admit to having an uncontrollable urge to kill gay men once he found out he was HIV positive, he, he, as soon as he was charged, he pled guilty straight away and he admitted everything that he did. So I believe him when he said that. That's like the one saving grace that there was no trial for the families that had to put up with, you know, he came clean, he went, went with it, right? Um, yeah. At least the families didn't have to go through listening to all the awful details. Yeah. Exactly. Now, Michael Lupo himself, he would die nine years later, in February 1995, wow. in prison of an AIDS-related illness. So obviously the HIV turned to AIDS and it was a AIDS-related illness that killed him. It was reported, again, I'll pop a copy of the newspaper article from the time up on our social media pages, that before his death, he would only get one visitor in prison, and that was a close friend an escort of Princess Margaret, who also, he lived with Lupo for two years, and that was a guiding month. And he was a designer, I believe. Um, and he was the only person who would visit Michael in prison. Now, as an aside, while I was researching for this episode, I found an article, and again, I'll post it on the social media pages, that listed the fact that Lupo, Michael Lupo, he had to be transported to a different prison because the prisons where he was, and I believe this was in 1998, so a year after he got sentenced, 
they were protesting because they feared that they might catch AIDS from him. And again, I think it just it just tells you what the mentality was at the time around that disease. That even so, the prisoners were protesting until so they moved him prisons in fear that they would start rioting because he was in the same prison as them. So in nineteen eighty eight he goes to prison. The prisoners protest that they could or might catch AIDS from him, which is complete bollocks. But then the the prison move him to another prison, just hoping that there's not going to be a protest well, in the next one. That's just well, obscene. Yeah, they didn't um, they didn't disclose where they would move him to, and I'm guessing they maybe told him occasionally in the UK they'll actually change the prisoner's name while they're in prison ah, because, it, because right. they've got no triety. Um, so I'm guessing, or, or maybe they put him in a safe wing. I don't know why, but yeah, they they moved him. But it, it just goes to show you the mentality at the yeah. time. Because I know what he did was awful, and he was a horrible man. But putting that aside and forgetting him as a person, mm. just the reaction from the coroner, dealing with Anthony Connolly's body, and then the prisoners, yeah. and how the prison reacted to the prisoners, it shows you what the mentality was, how there was just a ignorance and a lack of education around whole HIV and AIDS. I I feel like this episode just highlights that no one no one won in this instance. Yeah, he didn't go on to kill a lot of people, but he still killed. And then he too his some of his victims after death were treated appallingly. And then, you know, he himself was um was treated badly as well even though what he did was absolutely categorically wrong he still got human rights and he was he was probably made to feel so vile and you know unworthy of human contact in if if prisoners were like protesting against him like it's just awful isn't it so yeah that's that's all for me what did you think of that case rachel interesting it it was it was interesting and I, i'll probably highlight um one thing i found most interesting was that our the first person we got introduced to didn't die yeah. so that's that's great um usually you you introduce the character and then you introduce the 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 killer and then i think oh great that you know he's a victim he, we're not going to see him around for much longer but that was nice to see him survive. Exactly. Well, the the whole theme of 2020 and 2021 was about adapting and mutating and becoming a new variant. So I thought I'd I thought I'd do that myself as well, Rachel. Well done, bravo. Bad joke. But so for one last time today, I'd like you to relax, close your eyes, and picture the scene. You seemingly have everything in life. All your plans and aspirations were coming true as and when you planned them. But suddenly, out of the blue, you receive some news that rips your whole life in two. What would you do? How would you react? Okay, so so thank you everyone for listening. If some of you are new because you're either Pod Bible or the wonderful Bethan recommending us, welcome. I hope you stay. We release episodes every two weeks, usually on Tuesday night UK time if I'm not feeling lazy or Wednesday, if I am. And um, please reach out if you want to, to discuss either the cases or recommend cases. We're always open and happy to listen and have a conversation. So Rachel, any last words from you? 
Yeah, I guess, um, especially for our new listeners, tell us what you like about the show and anything you'd like to see change. Um, we're always curious for feedback, as Andrew has, has suggested. And also, uh, just so that I'm firmly putting it out there, um, therefore committing to it, I will be writing a script and presenting next month, February. So awesome. that'll be interesting. I'll look forward to that. I'll look forward to that. That'd be awesome. Yeah, that's great. I didn't even know. Well, I didn't know that for certain. So you heard the same yeah. time as me, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, great. So thank you, everyone. And good night and God bless. Thanks. Thanks.